Welcome to our podcast series from the Computer Science Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. I'm Lori Glover, and I'm here today with Dr. David Clark, who is a senior research scientist here in CSAIL. He is one of the original architects of the internet and has been working at CSAIL since 1973, trying to help shape the future of the internet, what it could become. Welcome, David. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, since you are one of the architects of the internet, we can really focus on what the internet is going to be in the future and, and some of the challenges and everything around it. Are we even sure what the internet is today? That, that's a really good question. Um, there, there are two different ways I could answer that, which I think help frame a conversation we can have. The first one is to make a distinction between the way the user thinks about the internet and the way the designers think about the internet. To the user, the internet is the experience. I used Facebook today, I used Twitter today, uh, but the, the engineers who designed the internet, those are the applications they run on top of the internet. The internet is this global infrastructure that carries data from one place to another. And the reason this distinction is important is the different parts of that system, the internet itself, the technology underneath it, the applications that run on top of it, are developed by different actors who have different goals, they have different responsibilities, and maybe we could come back to this later, they may have different regulatory obligations. The, the second way we can sort of understand what the internet is, is it's important to understand that there's a lot of stuff today being built out of internet technology, that is to say devices that run the internet protocols that aren't the internet. And we sort of know that that's true. Corporations have networks, the military has networks. We sort of hope the military networks are connected to the public internet. But it may not be quite as obvious uh, that there are services now being delivered to the consumer that are using internet protocols but aren't the internet, and they're actually they're coming over the same wire. Oh. And this, this distinction is sort of puzzling, but if you look at the way a cable company today might sell you telephone service, the telephone service, which is called voice over IP, uh -huh. is being carried in internet packets. But it's not being carried over the internet. It's over a separate allocation of capacity, and it's done using a different set of addresses, so the packets can't flow between the two. And the cable television product is being converted so that it'll all be carried in internet packets. But that doesn't mean it's over the internet. And that raises some really interesting questions again uh, for example, services that are carried in internet packets but are not being carried over the internet may not be subjected to the same regulatory obligations. There may not be any network neutrality rules with respect to something that's on the internet compared to something that's a voice service or a cable TV service because it's not the internet and network neutrality regulation regulates the internet. Right. So from the consumer perspective or business, that means they could change their costs, their their service level, all of those things? Absolutely. You see another example of this today. Most enterprises today are outsourcing a lot of their computing infrastructure to the cloud. Yes. And so you've got an enterprise facility or you've got distributed servers connected around the world and you have to connect them to somebody's cloud, like Amazon's cloud. How do you do that? Well, you might think the way you do it is over the internet, mm -hmm. but no, you don't do it that way today. There are lots of companies out there today, both companies that you've heard of, like AT&T or Comcast, and also specialized companies that will sell you a direct connection between Amazon's cloud 
and your enterprise. Those are separate global networks, sometimes running over the same fibers, sometimes running over different fibers. You don't know. They have global reach. They are the same technology, which means you get all the cost benefit of the commodity products, but they're not the internet. They may be able to give you more reliability, more assurance about quality of service. Uh, they probably can give you lower cost. And in cases where you really care about things like quality of service and resilience and reliability, you may move away from the public internet to something that is more suited to your purpose. So we have a much more complicated ecosystem today. Mm. And you have to be careful about what you call the internet when you're having a conversation here. Uh, for somebody says, I want the internet to be more secure. Right. You have to, wait, 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 would you unpack that statement? What exactly did you want to be more secure? What are you talking about? The apps, the infrastructure? So um, can we talk a little bit about, you raised the question of regulation and I'm, I'm curious. Um, Regulation of the internet, net neutrality, that is something a lot of people talk about, and it's obviously uh, important in, in this, uh, this sphere. And, but if you're not on the internet, none of that applies? Well, it depends how the regulation is written. Ah. But the way the current regulation in the United States is done, which of course is being contested, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the Trump administration has talked about rolling back the current regulatory framework put in place by the, by the previous uh, chairman, those other services like cable television are regulated under an entirely different title of the act. I mean, cable television's always been regulated under a different title than, than, than telephone service. Mm -hmm. And so now what the current regulations do is they took the internet and they put it into the same regulatory basket as the old-fashioned telephone service which I would say is a very poor fit. Yes. <laughs> but cable is something else. Yeah. And so you have these services coming into the consumer's home over the same wire, it's the same fiber or the same coaxial cable, but they, they are regulated under different uh, titles of the act with different regulatory obligations, and, and then the ISPs can treat them entirely differently. Wow, that's, that is definitely very interesting. Curious to see what might happen in the future with that. Um, so let's talk about the future and uh, starting with technology since that is the one thing that CSAIL is famous for. How is technology shaping the future of the internet? It has some influence although I'm going to tell you later on it's not the major driver of the future but you can look at network technology and you can look at technology that's supporting applications. We've, we've seen a tremendous transformation of the internet experience because of the proliferation of the wireless experience and that clearly depends on the ubiquitous penetration of wireless, it depends on the reduction in cost and the increase in performance of the mobile devices we're all carrying. Mm -hmm. the, the next buzzword in this space is Internet of Things. Oh, yes. And I have to say, I don't like the term. I, don't <laughs> I, I re regret the fact they chose the word Internet, and I regret the fact they chose the word thing, but aside <laughs> from that, it's a good term. Uh, but. Things in this context are small, fixed-function devices that presumptively operate autonomously. Humans aren't there watching them. My thermostat just controls my furnace. I don't have to be there at the user interface typing keys. It just controls my furnace. And people are talking about hooking all of these to the Internet. So that's, a, that's sort of a technology driver at the low end. Mm -hmm. And, of course, at the high end, 
we have these massive data centers that are the cloud, and we've already talked about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. the, um, the question about IoT, which I think we could come back to, is exactly it, how is that going to shape the future? Mm -hmm. But uh, there's this continuing supposition that uh, comes up about every 10 years whenever some new technology comes along they'll say, oh, this is, the, this is the technology that the internet somehow can't handle, and so we're going to have to replace the architecture. Okay, wow. And people said that about the personal computer when people said, uh, when we first saw the IBM PC, uh -huh. I'm going back now to 1980, yeah. people said, well, we could never run the internet protocols on a personal computer. It's much too feeble. And I said, of course you can run the internet protocols on a personal computer, and I programmed them to prove it. Uh -huh. So I, I actually wrote the first implementation of TCP and IB and IP for the IBM PC. Yeah. And the reason I did this was to prove it could be done. Yes. Okay. And, and I have to say it was a bit of a scratch but to get it all <laughs> in there. But you have to remember that machine had 640 kilobytes of memory. And yeah. things today have megabytes of memory. Right. So uh, there's a lot of interesting forks in the road about the, the future about things like IoT. I think people sort of under underestimate how transformative fiber optics has been in terms of giving us just massive inexpensive capacity. Mm -hmm. But but in fact I don't see sort of in the area of network technology, I don't see major transformative stuff coming. I think the fiber transitions already happened, wireless has happened. It's worth talking about what the future of wireless is. Yes. Um, people talk about 5G. Yes. It's a fantastic buzzword. It's, it's a brand new buzzword. After we wore out 4G, we have to say 5G. <laughs> and, but there's some deep truth here. Because uh, I'm at MIT, we can talk about this. Shannon came up with a theory that says, for a certain amount of bandwidth, you can only fit in so many bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you reduce the noise level, then you can fit in more bits. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're really close to Shannon's limits now. Okay, so you're not just going to get all of a sudden magically another factor of ten out of the same spectrum. Mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of there. So if you if you want to increase the total capacity of the wireless system. Mm -hmm. And demand in the wireless space is growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. I only know one way to exponentially grow the capacity of the wireless system, and that is to put in exponentially more towers. Oh, okay. Well, that's a whole other sort of issue. That's, a whole, that's right. But the point is, if you're going to put in exponentially more towers, the cells are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually you may end up with a cell outside your home. Yes, okay. yes. So, so I, have this, I have this saying I tell the people in the wireless industry, which is the the future of wireless is wiring because you've got to connect up all those cells. Mm -hmm. And who controls the, the circuits that you're going to use to hook up the cells? Is that a competitive marketplace? Can you get those circuits at reasonable price? Then there are issues of zoning and engineering and so forth. So we're, we're going through a cycle now where the real question is how do you, how do you engineer all those towers? Mm -hmm. But I think, I think the, the CEO of Verizon just said, we don't need more spectrum. That's not the best way to increase the capacity of our system. The best way to increase the capacity of our system is to put in more cells. That's the cheapest way for them to mm -hmm. uh, deal with this exponentially growing demand. 
Now, kind of, if we're talking about this, uh, you know, the prospect of having cell towers, you know, at your front door. Um, they could be tiny. <laughs> tiny little cell towers. <laughs> but we seem to have this uh, fundamental tension going on. We're talking about putting, you know, something like 20 billion devices on the Internet. And you've got this, we're reaching the end of, of Shannon's uh, yeah. perspective there. So, I mean, what, how do you see capacity? Could the potential of the Internet of Things that everyone's talking about could it be stymied by some of this constriction, or are there other things we should look at too? So here's a, here's a generalization that's sort of going to answer your question, which is the thing that dominates the traffic on the Internet today is video. Yes. Uh, Netflix today generates one-third of all the traffic flowing to the consumer over the wireline network. If you add in YouTube, it's over a half, and the number's getting up to 60 or 70 or 80 percent in total. What that means is that Anything that isn't video just is noise on the system. Okay. And things in general have very little to say. Okay. Okay. You know, how often does my thermostat have something to say? <laughs> you know, it's 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 measured in bits per second, not megabits per second. Right. So the the only question about capacity at the present time is where is video going? Mm. So here is my scenario for the next thing that will blow out the capacity of the internet, which is massive deployment of constantly on surveillance cameras, nanny cams, uh, bear cams. Uh, you know, people are putting these cameras around to watch all kinds of interesting things. I don't know whether you've ever watched the bear cam up in Alaska, have you? No, I've never seen that one. Oh, there's a there's a there's a there's a camera which is out in the remote regions of Alaska, and it's pointed at these falls where the grizzlies come to catch the salmon. Oh, and wow. in salmon season, you can watch the bears in real time catching the salmon. Okay, <laughs> so go to the bear camp. But the point is that they had to get some capacity from this remote location in Alaska back to the, right. you know, the, to the, the regular Internet. Now, imagine that every home has mm. a surveillance camera or a nanny cam. I once, for a friend of mine, hooked up a guinea pig cam. <laughs> And all of these people are streaming this content. Right. Okay. That behavior will emerge as there is capacity available. It's always been the case that the apps push the edge of the capacity. We streamed video over the Internet. We were doing it, not commercially, but not just as a one-off demo, mm -hmm. uh, in the 1980s. I mean, we streamed audio over the Internet in the 1970s. Okay. And we just had to wait for the capacity to get there. What was it? We streamed a we streamed a Rolling Stones concert in nineteen ninety three, I think, or something like this. Oh, okay. You know, and and but it was a demo because there wasn't the capacity. Right. Okay. And when you cross these thresholds, mm -hmm. all of a sudden new things happen. So you're you're getting at a a critical issue here, but it's not a technical issue. We can put in as much capacity as we are prepared to spend money to put in. Yes. It's a question of the incentive of the operators to spend the money. And, of course, they don't make a lot of money mm -hmm. when they stream Netflix. Okay, Netflix makes a lot of money. Right. Uh, in 1990, I had a wonderful conversation with a network operator trying to persuade them to put in quality of service tools to make voice over the internet work better mm -hmm. and deleting the expletives from what he said. Yeah. He said, 
why should I spend a lot of money so that Bill Gates can make a lot of money selling internet telephony for Windows? No, I'm not going to do that. It's mm -hmm. not in my interest. So is competition going to drive the uh, investment in the future? Mm -hmm. There are parts of the United States, never mind the world, where you can't make a return on investment. Mm -hmm. I'm involved in the... I guess you can call it the wiring, although it'll probably some of it be done wirelessly. The provision of internet access in rural western Massachusetts. Yes. And it's very clear if you look at the economics, a private sector actor simply cannot make money doing that. And right. so the only way you're going to do it is by spending public sector money, and that's what we're doing. We have Massachusetts State Bonding Authority mm -hmm. to use bond money to build out capacity in mm -hmm. western Massachusetts. The only way you can get it done. Right. So. There's an interesting trade-off of public incentive, private incentive, but there's no technical reason why you can't have as much capacity as you want. Right. It, the, the question is, who, who has the incentive to spend to do it? So, now, just this morning, I believe, I heard that Facebook now is doing its own custom programming in terms of TV uh, documentaries and things. If all of these social networking-type platforms start to create video um, products, will do you think that might shift or force something? or That's a really important trend, but I don't think it's going to manifest as an increasing demand on capacity. You can only watch so many videos per day. You know, we're, and again, I'll come back to this a little okay. bit. I want to talk about limits, and I want you to ask me about limits later. Okay. But, um, but your comment about Facebook is fascinating. We've, we've talked for a long time about convergence, and convergence originally meant that all these disparate things were moving onto this one platform, which was the internet-based or the digital-based platform, as, as people have said, bits are bits. Right. You know? And so now we have seen that. I, I want to call that Convergence 1.0, because what we got is cable TV is now running over the internet packets, yeah. and telephone is now running over internet packets, and the internet is now running over internet packets. But the phenomenon you talked about with Facebook, I'm going to call this convergence 2.0. What we are doing now is an entirely different kind of convergence. We are converging the user experience. It used to be that there were social media apps like Facebook and there were video content, uh, do-it-yourself uh, like mm -hmm. YouTube, and there was sort of the internetization of traditional commercial uh, the television product like Netflix doing mm -hmm. its own shows. And, and now what you're seeing is that this partitioning of the user experience into these silos was in fact artificial. Mm -hmm. And in, it's sort of a historical artifact. The telephone system could only carry telephone calls and the original cable system could only carry television. But the way you and I interact in real right. world isn't partitioned into these silos. We move seamlessly between, let me show you a video, let me, let me have a conversation. And the kind of thing Facebook is doing is converging these online experiences to give humans the, the integrated experience that they have in real life. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is an incredibly powerful uh, convergence trend. Mm -hmm. But it's a different kind of trend than the one we had before. So I've been calling this Convergence 2.0. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Can you say more about the future of the experience? Oh, sure. A um, couple things that I think are important trends. Uh, one is the 
the future of the online car. We've got a lot of work going on in this lab here about self-driving cars. Uh, it's also the case if you buy a car today that the information and infotainment system in the car is harder to understand than the car. The manual to drive the car is 20 pages and it takes 600 pages and two hours to learn how to drive the information system. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on there. The, the interesting way to think about the car, of course, is it's not a device, it's a network itself. It's a, it's a moving network. It's a, it's a network driving down the road that's got all these things inside it, including the accelerator and the brakes and the engine, all of which are now online, but also the displays which have the maps and so forth. But when you have these self-driving cars, I think in the long run, the cars are all going to be talking to each other. You know, I'm coming to the corner. Are you coming to the corner? Are you going to stop or am I going to stop? Is that light red? Mm -hmm. You know, the best way to tell whether the light is red in the future is not for some television camera in the car to be looking down the street trying to see whether the light's red. The best way would be for the car to ask the light, are you red? Oh, okay. And, and the light can say, no, you're not supposed to go now. You know, mm -hmm. so, so why, can't the, why can't the car talk to a speed limit sign and say, what did you say? You don't have to read it with a camera. Why can't you just ask it? Mm -hmm. You know, so I think there's a tremendous space here of automation. Let me give you another example. Okay. Uh, we now look at maps. You find people walking around cities. They don't understand staring at a map. That's going to get more and more and more sophisticated. Uh, basically, what you're going to get is you're going to have the ability to have this cyber overlay on on reality. And so imagine imagine you could just hold your cell phone up in front of you. Mm -hmm. You can do this today. It's got a camera on the back side. It's got a display on the front side. You could turn on the camera and, and you can sort of look at the real world through your cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. But now I could put a veneer of cyber information on that. You know, here's the hours the shop is open. You know, the, yes, you wanted it. You were trying to find a Starbucks. It, you go follow this arrow here. It goes down around there. You know, you're going to have people walking around. Now, do this, or I'm just going to be walking into trees. But uh, yes. imagine that this somehow is embedded in your glasses. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have the option of this sort of projection on your glasses of a sort of a cyber overlay on the real world. I don't know whether you've ever held one of these virtual reality devices up to your head and then looked in it and then turned your head and the whole world you're looking at changes. Well, why shouldn't you look at the real world that way? So I think that there are all kinds of things we're going to do here, cyber glasses, and we're going to be enriching the user experience. There are going to be little scanners you can carry in your hand. You can point it at something. Already you can pay for a parking meter with your cell phone. We're going to, we're going to, this mm -hmm. stuff's going to get smaller and smaller and more integrated into your world. Of course, this means everything has to be online all the time, yes. which comes back to your previous question. Billions of things, trillions of things, mm -hmm. they all have to be networked. They, they, they work so much better. Yes, you'd asked me to remind you about limits. Yes. This is the good point. The barriers. Talk about yes, limits. Right. <laughs> I, uh, we have a kind of exuberance about the future of computing because everything uh, seems to get better according to Moore's Law or its analog. And I like to remind people that Moore's Law, which says that things get about twice as fast every two years or a year and a half, depending on how you think about it, that's not a law of nature. Mm -hmm. That's a law about the optimum level of investment in research in order to get the best return on investment. But computing gets twice as fast every two years, and fibers can carry more, and disks get bigger. And 
And while this lab is actually quite interested in the question of when we're going to run out of Moore's Law, but that's a different conversation, the end of Moore's Law, which has been predicted multiple times over the last couple decades. I think it's really important to focus on the things that do not scale with Moore's Law, because as Moore's Law makes everything get faster and faster, something that doesn't improve along the Moore's Law curve sticks out more and more right. as, a, as a sort of a barrier. And so I have my list of things that do not scale as Moore's Law. One of them, of course, is the energy density in batteries. When I was a kid, we had these really terrible, what you call carbon-zinc batteries, and they periodically corroded through and filled the battery up with, your flashlight up with crud, and you had to clean all that. <laughs> if we had, at that point, I'm talking about sort of, you know, 1950s, I'm old, put batteries on a Moore's Law curve, mm -hmm. batteries would now have the energy density of antimatter annihilation, which is equivalent to saying that you could take the mass of the battery, run Einstein's E equals mc squared against the battery, and convert the entire mass of the battery into energy. Um, that's what Moore's Law really does, and that's, it's pretty clear that didn't happen with batteries, and if it had, you wouldn't be allowed to take them on airplanes. Batteries at this point have an energy density that I think is within a factor of four, maybe it's six, I can't remember, depends on exactly what example you use, but we're within a factor of four or five or something like that of the energy density of high explosives. And so here's an interesting question. What's the difference between a battery and a high explosive, right? Yes. And the answer is how fast the energy comes out. And we are now struggling with batteries that catch fire. Right, right. They, they in fact, start acting more like bombs than batteries. And if you increase the energy density of a battery by a factor of 10, you don't, you don't want that in a pocket. You don't right. want that on an airplane. Right. So, so batteries for the mobile experience are an absolute limit to what we can imagine doing. And we're going to have to figure out how to power things and so forth. There's another really important barrier here that's not on Moore's Law, and that's the cost of labor. Because we're climbing poles and digging ditches and putting up all these fibers so we can put up these towers and all this kind of thing. And, you know, labor does not get twice as cheap every two years. It would be really great if it did. No. But that's a capital-intensive business. And somebody once said to me about telephone companies, you know, deep down inside they're construction companies because they own trucks and backhoes and all this kind of stuff. The speed of light is not on the Moore's Law curve. <laughs> you know, it just, damn it, it ain't getting faster. It takes about 70 milliseconds now to send a packet from one side of the country to the other and get an answer back. Wow. Okay, now... You know, when I was in high school, I thought the speed of light was incomprehensibly fast. They, you read this science experiment about Michelson and Morley, and they had these rotating mirrors and all this. I don't know how you did that in science, but I just thought it was amazing. I said, light is so incredibly fast that this will never be a real factor. And now I'm fighting the speed of light every day because how can you have interactions between computers that can do billions of interactions a second? Mm-hmm when it takes a significant fraction of a second to send one message from one side of the country to the other and back. Okay. So we fight the speed of light every day. And I guess the last thing I would mention that does not scale on a Moore's Law curve is us. We do not get twice as fast. Our brains do not get twice as smart. Our eyes don't double our resolution. And so you're drowning. I'm drowning. I suspect mm -hmm. we're all drowning in information. As I said, we can only watch so many videos a day. I mean, what are you going to do? So we're really, we're really, we've got to think about technology as something that complements the capacity of the human, and the capacity of the human is a constant. Now, of course, to the extent we start having the computers talk to each other, 
Yes. Then, then they don't have to worry about the limitations of humans. And there was this, there was this lovely story in the news a while back about uh, a group that had to turn off the computers that were talking to each other because they evolved a language that humans yes. couldn't understand. Yes, I remember reading that too. <laughs> and that was like, whoa, that's really cool. <laughs> I like that. Right. So. Oh, that's great. Um, so, you know, those are our, our technical issues. Are there other factors that are critical in, in shaping the future of the net? Um, I think there, I think there's several, and to me, the the most important one is how is this all going to get paid for, and uh, there are a lot of tensions today about user tracking and marketing and demographics and so forth. There's there's actually a more basic question here, which is there's only so much money today in the advertising ecosystem, and today we are largely paying for the internet experience using advertising because the internet experience is free. Facebook is free. Not always. Netflix you pay for. Mm -hmm. But, you know, YouTube is free. Netflix is a fee. Uh, Facebook is free. Twitter is free. All these people are trying to give the user this enriched user experience. But there's only so much advertising money to go around. And so we can argue about how they fight over it. Right. Okay, Facebook is now trying to take advertising money away from Google. But the more basic question is, the amount of advertising money is gated by the size of e-commerce because companies only spend a certain fraction of their top line on advertising. And you can look at how much is being done either in commerce as a whole or in e-commerce, and you can derive the number that people are going to spend on advertising, and it's not growing at a Moore's Law rate. Okay, So I had this vision earlier of looking at the world through cyber glasses. And mm -hmm. one nightmare you could have there is that when you look at it, all you see is advertising, Okay, <laughs> yeah. which is ridiculous. Everybody throw the glasses away. <laughs> but I think we're going through a transition now where a, a, new, a new kind of funding model may have to emerge to pay for part of the Internet experience. It's going to involve, I think, direct payment from the consumer. The consumer pays for certain subscriptions today. They've learned that it's important to pay for Netflix and they might pay for a newspaper subscription. But I think you may end up paying for more of the, the experience and exactly how that's going to work out, I don't know. But I think that uh, the question of what that funding model is and, of course, who controls it. Mm -hmm. Always ask who controls. Right. You know, right. is a really important question about the future. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, are there any other you know, forks in the road that could happen? Well, the tension that I see is who controls. The question is always who controls. Mm -hmm. So, so let me let me give you an example from IoT, okay. which I mentioned earlier. The term "Internet of Thing," and as I said, I don't really like the term. Makes you it gives you a mental model that when you say "thing," you're talking about a piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. But but a thing is a fixed function device. And what that really means is that you ought to be thinking about a thing as a component of an application that's been directly embodied in hardware. Mm -hmm. The thermostat on my wall is not something I think of as a processor. I think of it as a thermostat. I know what it is. It's got a job. The application is control my furnace. Most of these things are embedded in application architectures. Mm -hmm. Okay, So who controls the architecture? Yeah. Our are things going to be hooked together using application architectures that are open or 
proprietary. Mm -hmm. The internet is an open platform. Anybody can send a packet from anywhere to anywhere. If you look at the application ecosystem, most of those today are not open, they're proprietary. They're controlled by powerful actors. Facebook controls the Facebook experience. Twitter controls the Twitter experience. Uh, Amazon controls the Alexa experience, mm -hmm. which is dominating a lot of the IoT interaction today. Right. These are closed systems. Right. So I think there's a really interesting question about the, the open internet and the, the closed future. What's that going to look like? Mm. Okay. But uh, we're, sort of at a, we're sort of at a transition point around the internet now. The, the internet was funded using federal research money until the middle of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And then it became a commercial undertaking. Mm -hmm. Commercial ISPs came into the space, commercial application developers came into the space. And since the mid-1990s, basically the internet and its future have been entirely shaped by the investment decisions that the private sector chose to make. If you invest, you've got something. If you don't invest, you know, it didn't happen. And, and what we're seeing now is the internet's become so important that other sectors of society, government speaking for society or civil society or so forth, they're saying, no, we want a voice in the future as well. Mm -hmm. But they're not bringing their money. Right. Okay. So there's a tension between the private sector saying, look, we brought the money. Mm -hmm. It's our money. We put our money at risk. We're going to invest it as we see fit. Mm -hmm. And that's going to define the future of the internet. And, and other people who are saying, no, we really, we really would like you to invest because we don't have any money of our own, but we're going to constrain what you do. That's network neutrality. Network neutrality was an attempt to take people who had spent their money to build infrastructure and say, no, but you don't get to use it in arbitrary ways because it's so important to society. And, and that's, that, that, it is not important to society, but the, the, the major fork in the road here is really this, the balance of these considerations between the, the, the incentives of the private sector, which is basically to spend my money in such a way I get the maximum return on investment, mm -hmm. and the, the larger societal interests, which say, look, we, want to, we have a voice in how the Internet should look. Mm -hmm. Well, the Internet now is so fundamental to so many things uh, from society's perspective and, and access to the internet is something that uh, is, is critical in so many ways. There, there's some countries that have called it a human right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite prepared to go there yet, but yes. Yes. Right. So um, the obvious issue we haven't talked about yet is security. What do you think about security of the internet? Yeah, we could talk about that for an hour <laughs> or two, couldn't we? But I, I think you want this to be podcast to be somewhat limited in length. So, so let me make a few high-level comments. First of all, if you, if you say, I want security to be better, that's, that's an aspirational statement. It's not an operational statement. You, can't, it's not, you have to take, somehow you have to take security and, and break it down into smaller objectives which are more actionable. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, what you realize is the different problems fall within the scope of different actors. Mm -hmm. There are security problems we have today that arise from insecurities in inside applications. Mm -hmm. And you can't ask the ISPs to fix the security problems that arose inside the applications. You have to go back to the application designers and say, look, this is your problem. Uh, and different people have different uh, obligations and incentives. We've had a problem recently where very cheap things, <laughs> video cameras, surveillance cameras, were put on the Internet, which were incredibly vulnerable to, I would say, casual penetration. And so we had uh, these machines being co-opted and used 
uh, in, in part of what's called a botnet for massive denial of service attacks. And you can say, okay, why did these devices come into the marketplace with such incredibly poor security? Mm -hmm. And the answer is the guys who designed them had absolutely no incentive to invest in security. They had no motivation. Mm -hmm. Okay, what are their motivations? Low cost and time to market. Mm -hmm. And it's very well known that improving security is a drag. No, mm -hmm. Is it a big drag or a little drag, but it's a drag on uh, cost of product and time to market. Mm -hmm. These cameras were put together by grabbing open source software off the internet, and that's fine, mm -hmm. except they grabbed 10-year-old software with known documented vulnerabilities that anybody could look up by going onto the web and Googling for them. Okay. It wasn't like it was modern open source software. It was 10-year-old virtual open software, of course. And the answer was these cameras were put together very cheaply. They were sold for $49 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And what was their incentive to do anything else? So the security problems, if the security problem was a simple technical problem, it would have been solved a long time ago. The problems we are dealing with are economics, coordination, incentive, and in different sectors, very different stories play out. Uh, uh, we wrote a report, uh, this, the, the uh, Internet Research Policy Initiative here inside CSAIL, which I'm a part, wrote a report last year on how to improve the security of the nation's critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that's a very important issue, but the, but the issues that arise there are entirely different than the consumer experience, which might have to do with uh, loss of privacy or, mm -hmm. or ransomware or something horrible like that. So you, the, the answer is, I, I think a lot of the security problems can be addressed. It's, it's a chronic issue. There's no perfection. Mm -hmm. Security has never been the perfection of a given attribute. It's always a balance of interest between people that have conflicting interests. I mean, we, we're having a serious debate both in this country and other countries, about the, the necessity of government being able to break into crypto systems in order to find bad guys. So yes. there's a tension between personal security and national security. Yes. And security will always be a balance of interest in this space. So you can't expect perfection. But if you ask most people today, they say, yes, I'm worried. And no, I don't know what to do about it. But on balance, I'm using the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably the way it's going to play out. So I'm not, I'm not a shrill, the sky is falling kind of guy about security. Okay. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So after all, you are optimistic about the future and the future of the internet. I am optimistic. Uh, we've survived so far. It's actually proved incredibly durable, given that we started working on it in what, 1974 or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, the, the global issues are very important. We have to deal with the tensions that arise from the very different conceptions in different countries of what the Internet should be. The U.S. and a lot of the Western world and China have a very different conception of what the Internet should be. But what we're seeing in that space, interestingly enough, is that there's a, I'd say, a natural localization of the Internet experience. Hmm. So if you go to China, uh, Facebook is blocked. And that offends me. But most Chinese wouldn't want to use Facebook anyway. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't offend me at all. <laughs> there, are, there are very good Chinese products that define the Chinese user experience. They've been 
they've been localized to the Chinese language, they've been localized to Chinese culture. It may be they have better tools inside them for Chinese surveillance and censorship, but the Chinese are defining the internet experience. And to me, that doesn't constitute the, the future that's sometimes been called balkanization. Mm -hmm. okay. I would prefer that Chinese who would like to have a global experience have access to Facebook. I guess most of them wouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. and so I'm, I, I, I think there are serious issues around the globalization, but I think the, the transition that I mentioned earlier of, of society trying to inject its uh, wishes into the, the future of the Internet is the next transition we have to watch. And we've made, we've made it through a bunch of previous transitions. Mm -hmm. uh, to comment about China uh, illustrates that different countries are going to go about trying to shape the future of the Internet in very different ways. Mm -hmm. U.S. and the way it interacts with the private sector is entirely different than China and the way it intersects with the, the, the private sector. There are lots of actors in this space, lots of points of view. I think the basic structure of the Internet is robust. I think that it's going to survive. So uh, I guess what I'd say is our work at CSAIL is to look for research questions that might lead to a better future. Uh, those questions are not technical, which is why I run an interdisciplinary research group here, which mm -hmm. includes an economist and a political scientist, and I collaborate with lawyers. I think that's the kind of work we have to do to help shape the future of the Internet. But yeah, I'm an optimist. I feel good about the future, and that's why I'm still here. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, this was a wonderful uh, view of the Internet and uh, the potential future that it holds. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's always fun to talk. <laughs> Great.